if prisons aren't safe environments, they can't do any of the good stuff we want them to do around rehabilitating, educating, training, you know, building, you know, building resilient skills, uh, building workplace skills. None of that can happen if the environment isn't safe. And while the environment isn't safe, staff retention will continue to be a huge issue because no one wants to go to work every day and worry whether they're going to be assaulted. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, David Shipley, a former prisoner who now works to bring about prison reform. David talks about the consequences of a broken prison system. Healthcare is withheld and the result is that often prisoners will suffer life-changing impacts or even die when they shouldn't have. And he reveals a side of being locked up that's often overlooked. I came away from being imprisoned with, with, with sort of far more love for my fellow man. I think the, some of the acts of, of profound kindness and love I saw in prison moved me to tears then and still do. Welcome to British Thought Leaders. Today I'm joined by David Shipley, a former prisoner who's now calling for reform to our prison system. David, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You start by telling us your story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I, um, I, I grew up in quite a sort of privileged life in London and in, in leafy Buckinghamshire. Um, and by the age of, of about 30, I was, I was working in corporate finance. And then I uh, did a very stupid, dishonest thing in 2014. I committed a fraud. I, I lied to some investors in a company we were all talking about setting up together. And I then produced sort of fake documents uh, to support that lie. Uh, years passed, and in 2018, the police got in touch with me. And they had unearthed this offence. They interviewed me. I felt quite relieved in a strange way. And I, I you know, confessed, uh, subsequently pled guilty in court. And then in early 2020, I was sentenced to prison. Uh, so I, I was sentenced to 45 months in prison. Uh, starting in February 2020. Uh, during my time in prison, I, you know, I didn't expect prison to be a nice environment, uh, but I was horrified, and still am horrified, at how, how bad the English prison system is. Uh, I firmly believe it. if we were trying to design a system to maximise reoffending and to destroy as much human potential as possible, we would be hard-pressed to, to beat the existing system. So while in prison, I, I thought long and hard about what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I started studying for a creative writing MA. And after my release, I've, I've worked to write and speak and advocate for improving our prison system. Uh, so I, I write regularly uh, for The Spectator on prison issues. I uh, have worked as a consultant prison inspector, uh, and I am pursuing a PhD at Southampton, uh, looking at the impact of parental imprisonment on children. I mean, we've all seen the movies, but could you tell us what it's really like to actually be in prison? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, before I went to prison, I spent about a year waiting to be sentenced, and so I sort of knew I was probably going to prison. And I kept asking myself that question, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be like the movies? And... I think the reality is it's almost nothing like the popular media portrayals of it. I don't know if any of your audience are 
old enough to remember the, the British TV show Porridge. Yeah, I do. Ah, brilliant. So in a strange way, Porridge, despite being very dated, is probably the most accurate media portrayal, I think, of, the, of what it's like to be in prison in this country. Uh, it captures the kind of the weirdness, the strange humour, the boredom, the monotony, uh, and the antagonism in a way that I think no other media does. Uh, and I suppose to be a bit more specific about that, some of the, you know, I think before prison I was, uh, you know, afraid that I might be the subject to kind of to violence, to, to even sexual violence, uh, that be, the environment would be awash with drugs and, and threats and weapons. Uh, and those things were not really the case. I mean, the prison system is awash with drugs. Uh, and I think, though, certainly in my experience, most of the violence is limited to people who are either sort of involved in, in gang activity, right. um, and that there's turf wars and that kind of thing, both within and without prison, but also uh, people who incur debts, for, typically for drugs. So I, I did not feel under threat of physical violence while I was in prison, thank God. Uh, I think what was much worse than I expected was the sheer unremitting soul-crushing misery of prison and the way it sort of it saps your uh, your energy it, it crushes your spirit uh, and that combined with the the kind of the noise you know an environment where there's, there's banging of doors slamming of gates keys rattling people shouting boots thumping on concrete floors you know and all of that in an environment where people are you know, feel sad, feel ill, feel lost, feel desperate. Uh, that, I think, the sort of psychological and spiritual toll of prison, I, I, I had underestimated. Mm. I mean, you've, uh, since your release, been campaigning to get the prison system improved, so you must have seen some things that you felt, even for a criminal, this is just not right, and, and it's something that they shouldn't be dealing with. I mean, what were those things? Yeah, I, I think, so... You know, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I, th I think that the, we, we, we do imprison people who have committed crimes, and I think there's a, a strong social argument for that. However, I think our prison system should, should teach the right lessons. Uh, and what I actually saw in prison was that often even the notional rights which prisoners do have are ignored. So uh, what I talk about a lot is the, the right to health care. So in theory every prisoner in this country has the same right of access to health care as anyone who's not in prison. And judges make sentencing decisions on that basis. And if you speak to lawyers who work in the criminal justice system or to the police or to, to judges, they all believe that's the case. So they believe when they are sentencing someone to prison that health care access is, is as it should be. In reality, in prison, health care is withheld until the moment of crisis. Uh, so I'll give you a few examples of that, some from my experience, some that have been reported publicly. So in uh, late February of 2020, I was housed on A-Wing in Wandsworth. And one day a man collapsed because he had been smoking spice uh, and he'd had some sort of cardiac issue, breathing issue. He collapsed on the wing. And the officers prevented other prisoners from giving him CPR or any kind of first aid attention put all the prisoners who were out back in their cells, and then proceeded to stand around this, this man who passed out in a circle, waiting for paramedics to arrive. Really? 
Yes. So uh, no, none of them made any effort to do anything. And I think this is something that the prison system does to the people who work within it, which I think it, it, it really harms their human instinct for compassion and for kindness. And I think part of that's because prison is a horrible environment. As I said, it's noisy, there are violent people, there's danger, there's discord. And often you have only a few prison officers responsible for a wing where there might be a hundred men out roaming about. So a way that I believe some prison officers, perhaps many prison officers, respond to that pressure and that stress is by crushing and, and making their own natural human instinct to, to be compassionate. And so you get this sort of behaviour where people stand around. How, how did you feel as a prisoner to know that their regard for your life is that they're not even going to do anything in that situation? Yeah. It's, it's horrifying, right? And I, I think another moment I had in the early weeks in Wandsworth was I remembered realising at night time, they only have a really skeleton staff on because the prison service is so understaffed. And so what that meant was I thought, well, hang on, if there's a fire, there's no possible way they can get everyone out in time. Uh, so if there was a fire, if they couldn't put it out, we would all die in ourselves. Uh, and similarly, sort of a few months later, in the late summer of 2020, on Wandsworth's H-Wing, there were cells on either side of the landing so we could look out through our window flap and we heard screaming and a, across the way, uh, one guy was assaulting the other man in his cell. Really, the screams coming from the guy who was being attacked were, were chilling. And I can still, rem still remember them now, I feel them in my heart. And in that situation, one of the night staff came along and she wasn't allowed to open the doors because the night staff at Wandsworth are typically not able, allowed to do that, don't have the keys to do that. And so she sort of, kept trying to tell the man doing the assault to stop, again for about 20 minutes until someone senior enough to be allowed to open the door, opened, was able to open it with some other officers in, in present and you know, stop the assault. Um, you know, another example is there's a um, chap called, there was a chap called David Morgan who was uh, in HMP Chelmsford and he had been told he was gonna be transferred to another prison and he really didn't want to be. Uh, you know, I think often being transferred to another prison means you don't know who you're going to be, end up with, you don't know what a new prison is going to be like. You're, you might not like where you are, but at least it's a known quantity. So he really didn't want to be moved. And he, he took a, an overdose of his painkillers. And when he arrived in the prison reception to be put on the, the, the transport, he told the staff, I've taken a, an overdose of painkillers. You know, I, I can't travel. And they got a nurse to inspect him. The nurse said, well... No, I think he's just drunk, but we'll leave him in a, a holding pen. And they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Uh, uh, and they, but they said, well, we'll observe him. And they put him in a, a holding cell in reception, which is a sort of perspex walled cell, so they could see him. And hours passed, and over those hours, David uh, collapsed again and again and again, to the extent that he had multiple fractures, uh, you know, all, all throughout his body, you know, horrendous injuries. Eventually, having watched this for a period of hours, healthcare staff and prison staff decided that perhaps there was something in his suggestion that he'd taken an overdose, and they called an ambulance. Mm -hmm. uh, some days later, David died in hospital. Now, that was reported by the uh, prison, prison and probation ombudsman, uh, who did do an investigation into every death in custody, and the, the details are horrific. I've, I've not talked through the specific details of the injuries, but they, they are grim reading. Um, 
And those are just some examples of how healthcare is withheld. And the result is that often prisoners will suffer you know, life-changing impacts or even die when they shouldn't have. So just within healthcare then, you see there's, there's a huge disconnect between what prisoners should be entitled to and what they, what they are entitled to. To return to your question of what that means about kind of what, what's, what the prison system is like and how it should be different, I think the, the issue we have is that, first of all, the prison system doesn't live up to what it is supposed to do. Uh, the prison system is supposed to offer every prisoner the opportunity to go out for exercise every day, a shower every day, access to meaningful education or other purposeful activity like work. The idea being that when people leave prison, as 95% of prisoners will, they are in some way rehabilitated, reformed, and more likely to, to become productive, positive, pro-social members of society than when they came in. And instead we have a prison system which doesn't really do any of that stuff. So our prisons are grossly understaffed and, and staffed by very junior members of staff. And what that means is that you know, those staff are quite often scared, I think, don't know what's going on and, you know, aren't maybe able to control the wing in the way they should. Uh, so we have prisons that have a higher level of violence against staff and higher levels of violence between prisoners. Because of that, they become harder environments to recruit in. So the staff keep leaving, they still can't retain, right. you know, experienced staff. And because of those issues that keep kicking off with violence or, you know, disorder that the staff have to rush off to deal with, what tends to suffer is access to education, access to work, access to outside for exercise, sometimes even access to showers. And then you have prisoners who are being locked up for 23 plus hours a day, denied even the right to get some fresh air or clean themselves. And we know that when you don't have purposeful activity, when you're locked in your cell all day, violence goes up. So this is this vicious cycle which is actually creating a environment which is it's almost impossible to rehabilitate. Imagine if you're, you're living on a wing where there's such disorder that the, the, the prison officers can't control it. You spend all day worrying about violence. And then perhaps one day they do manage to get you to your education class. How much attention would you have for that if actually you're worried about what's going to happen back on the wing in a couple of hours? Um, so there's that area in which prisons fail. Uh, and I think another one is the sort of basic values that the system so prison is full of rules, lots and lots of rules, which are often very, uh, very petty or, or seem slightly nonsensical. So, and the issue there is they are often not enforced consistently. So, for example, most prisons in this country will have a rule saying you are not allowed to vape on the landings. Uh, prisons banned smoking some years ago. In reality, in most of those prisons, not only are prisoners allowed to vape on the landings, quite often staff will vape on the landings. So at Wandsworth, I, I remember on a few occasions seeing a new officer who'd just arrived from training, you know, would walk up to someone who was vaping on the landing and say, hey, you know, you're not allowed to do that. And they would often be laughed at by other prisoners, but also by their colleagues, the other, other officers, because it was seen as such a ridiculous rule. And if you create rules in a system and then you choose not to enforce them, what you do is you increase the disregard for rules generally. And I think there's a huge issue there that actually prisons should be teaching people that, you know, society's rules should be 
treated with good regard, that we should behave in a pro-social way. And actually, in that way, the system does the opposite. Uh, you know, similarly, often prisoners who are exhibiting like antisocial behaviour are placated and effectively rewarded for that. So, in my time at Wandsworth, there was a a man who arrived on on one of the wings, and he uh, he was a vegan. This, this detail will will become, become apparent shortly why I'm telling you that. So, he was housed with another man who wasn't a vegan, and the vegan prisoner became very angry when the other guy was eating animal products in his cell. He said, you can't eat that in here. I'm a vegan. I don't want to be around it. And the other prisoner, who was substantially older, I think a sort of man in his 60s or 70s, said, well, I'm not making you eat it. It's my food. We both have to live here, you know. And the, the, the vegan man became very angry and assaulted his cellmate. And the uh, outcome of that was that the, the man who was assaulted was hospitalized. Uh, and then the prison had to decide what to do with the man who committed the assault. And eventually what they did was they thought, okay, well, he's not safe to be put in a cell with other people, so he got a single cell. And single cells are generally seen as preferable. You know, your, your, a cell in Wandsworth is about the size of, size of a car parking space, and you would much rather have that whole space to yourself than share it with another man. So he got a single cell. Later, when he got a job in the gardens, because he had a note in his file saying that he had assaulted other prisoners, he was given the uh, what's called the outdoor uh, mobile gardening job. So he was just allowed to wander around the, the garden areas of Wandsworth, pruning and doing what he wanted for the duration of his shift mm. without any particular supervision. Again, this was seen as a, a really a plum job. Yeah. And those sorts of dynamics play out often in prisons. And I think, again, this is partly because you've got you know, inexperienced staff that maybe don't know how to control situations, so they just try to make the situation go away, right. rather than realising that part of their job is to, you know, insist on good good behaviour, essentially, pro-social behaviour, uh, non-destructive, non-violent behaviour. Um, so I think those are sort of some of the ways, I think, in which the, the prison system fails, and that it, it should be different. A Bedford prison recently got this urgent notification. I think it's the fifth prison in a year to get one. Can you tell us what those are and what that means? Of course. So uh, Charlie Taylor, who is the uh, chief inspector of prisons, uh, as part of his job when, he, when, when his team are investigating and inspecting a prison, if he finds that actually there's a, a really urgent prop, set of problems in an establishment, he writes one of these urgent notifications. This is where the problems are so severe, it can't wait for the report to come out in a few months' time. The idea is this has to be made public right away. So he writes a letter to the Secretary of State, who is currently Alex Chalk, and he publishes that letter. And in the case of Bedford, it's because the, the rate of violence there is, I think, the highest in the country. That's violence between prisoners and you know against staff as well. As a result, the, the whole prison is failing, you know, it's education isn't really happening, work isn't really happening, nothing purposeful is happening, it's just a, an environment in which people's chances of building a good life after prison are being made less every day. Can you give us some sense of what it would be like to be in a prison that's kind of out of control like that? Yeah, I think there's an air of danger, so I suppose the, the, the environment I've been in that was most like that was probably 
two different wings in Wandsworth, actually. It's points A-wing felt very dangerous, and I think G-wing did as well. And in both those cases, if you can imagine an environment where so there might be a hundred plus men roving around the wing. You know, it's noisy, it's chaotic. People are taking advantage of the time out of cell to try and do trades, do business. But there's a sort of underlying tension, and you have a, a sense that actually the the prison officers aren't really in charge. And there is a sense in which pr in prison, even imprisonment, is by consent in this country because actually, if if there's two or three officers on a wing and those hundred men decide to riot. There's very little those officers on the wing can do other than hope they can get behind a door quickly and while they wait for, you know, for reinforcements. Now, order would eventually be restored when the, when the riot squad came in. But there, there's a, a dynamic there where if, if, you know, if people are being compliant and, and generally respecting the rules and respecting the officers, it's okay. There's sort of a, a calmer energy in the room. But it's, it's almost like being in a, a, like a pub when, on a Saturday night when everyone's a bit drunk and you can feel that something violent's about to kick off. Um, there's just an energy, and I think when it's there, everyone feels on edge. You know, everyone feels that tension, that stress, that fear. Uh, and it's a, and obviously in a prison you can't escape that. You know, if you're, if you're in a pub on a Saturday night and it feels like things are going to get violent, you leave. You know, you don't have to stay there, but actually, you're locked into this space. There's no way to escape, and I, that that will trigger very natural. You know, if we can't flee a situation that we feel stressed by, we, we tend to either then hide and curl up or we, we get ready to fight. These are very, you know, these are kind of universal responses across mammals. This is just a human thing. So you can feel that tension building and the stress and the, the tempers starting to get higher. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very stressful environment to be in. But for the prisons to have got to that point, you've talked a bit about the um, prison guards, etc. There's also a, a funding and resources issue. What do you think are the main causes? I think it, it is partly funding and resources. Uh, if, what you need to look at is you go back well, 10 years ago, the uh, coalition government was looking to bring down public spending. And you know, they, they weren't able to target things like education or the NHS particularly because they those are very, very electorally popular. So there was a big focus on cutting spending in prisons, probation, the military, sort of areas where local government, where the, the cuts wouldn't be noticed and wouldn't harm them electorally. As a result of that, the government pursued a policy of essentially getting more senior prison staff to leave because they were more expensive and recruiting and replacing them with uh, more junior staff. Now, the outcome of that is, even if you go back five or six years ago, about 60% of prison officers had been doing the job for more than 10 years. Now, less than 30% have. And I think another 30% have only been in the job up to two years. So it's a really, really inexperienced prison officer cohort now. And yes, more money will help. You know, I think, I think the more staff on the wings would be good because that would mean the wings feel safer, the staff feel safer, also the, the staff will get more downtime away from the wings. Spending all day on a, on a noisy prison wing is, a, I think as I've hopefully conveyed, a kind of unsettling, noisy, stress-inducing experience. Um, and I think the additional staffing would mean that prison officers can have time away from that to recover and therefore are less likely to burn out. But I don't believe that additional money and, and resource is enough there is a cultural issue here, as I've touched on with the 
the lack of rigor around enforcing of rules, the lack of clarity around discipline in prisons. Um, and that's a huge issue because without, if prisons aren't safe environments, they can't do any of the good stuff we want them to do around rehabilitating, educating, training, you know, building, you know, building resilient skills, uh, building workplace skills. None of that can happen if the environment isn't safe. And while an environment isn't safe, staff retention will continue to be a huge issue because no one wants to go to work every day and worry whether they're going to be assaulted. So, yes, more money, but also I believe there's a, a fundamental issue in the, in the leadership of the prison system in the MOJ that hasn't grappled with what's wrong with our prisons. You mentioned about choices being made based on what's electorally popular. I think one of the issues here is that the public don't really care too much about the state of our prison system. Yeah, I think, I, I think sort of prison reform has historically been a, an issue that's really important to left-leaning liberals, but maybe not the broader electorate. Mm. I, and I think that's a mistake. I think actually, you know, if you look at our, our, our prison system, about half of people who've been in prison go on to re-offend. And that re-offending costs at least £18 billion a year. That's the last statistic, and that's from a few years ago, so it's almost certainly over £20 billion a year now. And that's before you think about the social costs of ongoing high crime, of families damaged by being victims of crime, of the, the families of people who go to prison. You know, the, the, the children of prisoners are not, uh, you know, are not criminals, by and large. They are, they are children. And their lives and development and chances are harmed by their parent repeatedly going to prison. So high reoffending rips at our social fabric, it costs lots of money, it you know, imposes the burdens of high and ongoing criminality on the whole of society. And essentially there are, there are you know, you can either lock everyone who's ever committed a crime up forever, but we are, I think, unlikely to do that as a society. So we have to therefore accept that about 95% of people in prison are going to be released one day. And we should therefore practically care about them doing good things while in prison so when they leave they are more likely to live good, purposeful, happy, you know, pro-social lives where they you know, contribute to society in one way or another. The challenge, I guess, though, is that the, the prison system we have just doesn't do that, as I've been saying. And I think in order to make it work, we would have to make profound change. Now, I think for the typical voter, the appeal to actually this is a waste of money, it's probably quite a powerful one. But also, I think for me, if you look at our current prison system, a lot of prisoners spend 22, 23 plus hours a day in their cells, essentially doing nothing. You know, lying on their back, watching rubbish TV. Many seek escape through, through drugs or alcohol. And that's just a, a waste of, of life. And I, 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 don't, I think I would change the prison system such that everyone in prison has a bespoke personal plan for, for training, education, you know, skills development, therapy, which starts on you know, day one of their sentence. And that would mean they, they get up every day and have something good to do. Now, I don't think that's making prison softer. I think, I think insisting that people get up and study or work, you know, every day of their sentence is actually making it more rigorous in some way. So I, so I don't think it's a, hopefully that's an argument which will you know, a, a appeal to people who are maybe more right of centre and less likely to be in favour of prison reform. 
and I, I believe if we pursued a model like that and expanded the the open prison estate such that at the ends of sentences prisons are able to to work in the community to pay taxes to pay towards the victim surcharge fund and to make sure they are much more likely to continue employment after release that would benefit everyone we, we would we would save money we would have less crime we would have fewer families you know damaged by being victims of crime or damaged by parental imprisonment and we would you know hopefully have a a happier more well-adjusted society how do you think the, the public can come around to that kind of thinking apart from there being more crime and then they want the prisons to be improved there must be other ways i think it is tough i think the, the people only really talk about the prison system when something's going wrong with it so the the high profile escape from Wandsworth earlier this year, I think has pushed prisons into the, the public eye. The overcrowding crisis has obviously forced the government to start thinking seriously about sentencing reform. I think the, the thing about the prison system is it's, it's very much shrouded in secrecy. So unlike doctors or nurses or paramedics or police officers, prison officers are civil servants. They're not allowed by law to speak publicly about what's going on. Uh, and that, I think, is a, a big issue, actually, because it, it means it's very hard to know what's going on within prisons. Uh, you know, our prisons are cloaked in these, these layers of secrecy. And most of the people who are imprisoned are, I would say, typically pretty marginalised in society and therefore, you know, find it difficult to, to, to access the public sphere afterwards and express what they've experienced. So I suppose part of why I write and talk about what prisons are really like is because I, I think there's a an obligation on those of us who have been in prison and who have some ability to you know to kind of get listened to hopefully mm -hmm. uh, to talk about it I think I think the more light we shed on what goes on in the prison system you know the, the more chances that people will actually realize we have to find a better way um, and perhaps that's astonishingly naive of me but I, I, I hope that simply getting enough light in there and revealing what it's like will shift opinion. You mentioned the overcrowding. We got to the point where judges were told, don't send people to prison because the, the, the numbers in there were at record highs. I mean, how do we get, what, what are the factors that are causing that overcrowding and what can be done about it? Yeah, that's a, a quite a, a big question. So the, as you correctly said, the, the judges were told that the prison system is, is about to be full. So, you know, if it's a borderline sentencing to prison or not prison, try not to sentence people to prison, adjourn sentencing. Uh, but that was obviously not never going to buy much time at all. So the government then responded fairly quickly with some changes, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But as to why that's happened, I think the, the, the key factor that's driven up the prison population is longer sentences. There's a lot of focus on talking about short sentences sub 12 months and they, they do make a difference but I think there's never more than four or five thousand people in the prison system with really short sentences at any one time. The prison population is about 88,000 at the minute and sentencing has been creeping up over the last 10-15 years uh, so for, for drug offences sentencing has increased significantly, for fraud offences like mine sentencing was increased substantially during the, the Labour government. Um, the sentencing for other crimes has, has increased as well, crimes of violence. The other big factor driving it up is the focus on historic sex offences. Uh, so there's been a substantial increase of you know, men who've committed historic sex offences in the prison population. 
and that, that is also increasing the population. While this has been going on, the prison uh, system has been trying to build more these very, very large prisons that maybe have capacity for one, 1,000-plus prisoners. And I, I think this is really misconceived because, firstly, it's really hard to persuade a local community they want a massive prison next door to their nice village. And, you know, people are just not particularly keen on it. And the, the government tends to articulate the argument it will create jobs. And, you know, while that's true, it's, it's just not popular. So getting them through planning consent is really hard. They take a long time to build. And I actually think large prisons are a bad idea because in a large prison like a Wandsworth, which I, was, I started my sentence in, the problem you have is because there are so many staff and so many prisoners, no one really gets to know each other. There's no sustained relationships. Often people just don't know who they're talking to. And I think that makes the whole system more chaotic. Whereas in a smaller prison with a population of three or 400, you will often find that the, the prison officers know pretty much every prisoner by face and name. And that consistency of relationship makes managing kind of behavior and rules easier, but also builds more human relationships, which actually allow people to thrive as much as one can thrive in prison. So if it were up to me, I, and we were building more prisons, I would be pushing for building smaller prisons. I would also build uh, open prisons, because I think they offer a, a much better route to getting thing done, things done. They're often much quicker to build than, than closed prisons, which even once they have planning consent, take many, many years to, to, to be ready. What's the key difference between the two? Sure. So uh, about 5,000 prisoners in this country are in the open prison system. So 83,000 are in the closed system. The closed prison is your typical, it has walls, it has fences, there are lots of barred gates, people are locked in their cells. And there are, within that there are three categories. Category A for the most high-risk prisoners, the likeliest to escape. Category B, sort of middle and category C. And they have varying levels of security, but they're all essentially prisons where you are locked in and contained by walls and gates. Open prisons are quite different. So uh, the, the open prison I, I was at, which is Holsley Bay in the Suffolk, on the Suffolk coast, uh, Holsley Bay, I think it's a population of about 350. And it's more like uh, an army base, if you can imagine that. So there are, are sort of low single-storey housing blocks uh, around a, a kind of green area with some paths and roads through it. And there's nothing stopping prisoners leaving other than the fact that they will get caught and then sent back to closed conditions. So in an open prison, you, are, you, know, you, you don't have a cell, you have a room that you're not locked in. You just, you know, you probably lock yourself in at night for peace and quiet and privacy. What's really important about open prisons as, an, as a way of achieving reform and rehabilitation, though, is that they, they allow prisoners to do things which actually have real value. So a lot of education in prisons is, is not very good quality. Ofsted in, inspects our prison education systems and it rates them pretty badly. Whereas in an open prison, prisoners are able to access external education. So they can go to a local college or you know, te technical school or even university and pursue meaningful qualifications. They are also able to, so they'll be, to do that, they'll be issued with what's called a, a release on temporary license. So they'll be given a, a document which says that you're allowed to go out for the day to that college to go and study, then you come back at the end of the day. And that is really powerful. Similarly, ROTLs, R-O-T-Ls, can be issued for work. 
So a lot of prisoners in open prisons will go out to work every day. They might work at a construction company, a logistics company, you know, a, a local firm doing all sorts of things. And they will earn a wage, they'll pay taxes, they'll also pay an additional tax effectively towards the victim surcharge fund. And the great thing about that is prisoners are able to bring their work skills up to date, actually have a job which they can continue after release. You know, they're paying taxes, they're contributing to society and, and also are able to, to either save money up so when they're released they have some funds to, to support their life, yeah. which makes reoffending much less likely, or if they are you know, married, have a family and children to support, they're able to send money home and therefore strengthen that relationship. And again, we, we know that the two big things which make it less likely that people reoffend are having a strong family environment to go back to and having a job. So, yes, yeah, so, so I think the, the, to return to the issue of the overcrowding crisis, it's been driven by longer sentences, by a kind of reluctance to, to build the right kinds of prisons, smaller prisons, open prisons, and by the barriers to building these large prisons, which are mostly, you know, local community objections, and then the fact they just take quite a long time to build. Also with this um, the overcrowding and the judges not putting in people into prisons had a, a knock-on effect on the probation service. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yes, so as a result of this, this overcrowding crisis a couple of months ago, the government decided that now there should be a presumption against short sentences. So they define that as sentences of below 12 months, which does make sense because if you send someone to prison for a sentence of six months, you know, they'll serve half of that inside. So you're literally talking about sending someone to prison for 12, 13, 14 weeks and then releasing them. Now, all that happens is that it's just long enough to mean they'll lose their job, they'll probably lose their home because they can't keep up payments on the rent or the mortgage. So their life's been blown up, but there's no possible way you can do any meaningful rehabilitative work with someone in three months. They will just go to a, a local prison like Wandsworth where nothing really good happens and then they'll be thrown back out again. And I saw this in my time at Wandsworth, prisoners who would c come back again and again and again. I think I was in Wandsworth for most of 2020, and there was one man who came back three times while I was there. And you've just got a question what the, what the point of that is. Whatever, whatever we're trying to achieve by those sentences is clearly not working because the, the person keeps going back to prison. So the government has therefore decided that Generally speaking, with some exceptions, if, if, if a court might sentence someone to less than 12 months in prison, they should look at other options. And that usually means a community order supervised by the probation service. So the result of that is you're going to get a whole load of people who would have gone to prison being shuffled over to the probation service now. Um, and I'll talk about the condition of the probation service in a second, if you like. Further to that, the government has expanded the access to what's called home detention curfew, or more popular as the TAG. So at the end of sentences, uh, some prisoners are entitled to be released early on, on TAG. So if your sentence is less than four years, historically you've been able to get released between three and six months early, and you, you are on a home curfew, so you have to be at home between certain hours decided on a case-by-case -case basis, you wear an ankle bracelet and that you're monitored in that way. And that's you know, actually really good because it, it's only really offered to 
low-risk prisoners. It's not offered to people who have committed sort of you know, violent or sexual crimes. So it's, it's, it's limited in who it's on offer to, but it does mean that you get people who are clearly not a meaningful risk to the public out of the prison system. You free up space, you stop spending money housing them, and you give them a bit more time to actually adapt back into life. And also the tags can be quite popular in some ways because some 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 former prisoners talk about the way they actually allow them to use them as they can use the fact they've got a tag as pushback against people who might try to encourage them into to criminality and say well I can't you know you're coming out to the pub you're coming down to this thing I can't put a tag you know it's actually a a helpful way of being able to say no sometimes so so the government's now said actually we're taking out this rule that you have to have a sentence of four years or less because actually we think there are probably people with longer sentences who would be fine for this. So that limit has been removed. That does again mean more people are going to be released on tag earlier and that means more work for the probation service. Uh, and the probation service itself is in a is in dire straits. Uh, it was already struggling before the change. Yes. So um, uh, Justin Russell, who is the, or sorry, was the uh, chief inspector of probation, so he's Charlie Taylor's counterpart, uh, he wrote his sort of final annual report back in the summer before moving on to a new role. And in it, he talked about a staffing crisis in probation. And again, you're seeing the same issues very much. The, the more senior staff, have, in many cases, have left. You've got very inexperienced staff. The, the system itself is really straining. Uh, probation officers are supposed to manage about 30 sort of individual people at any one time. But many, many officers, they're looking after twice that. Uh, so... And, and, you know, so the government has these high recruitment targets for the probation service, which they, I believe, do keep hitting, but actually staff retention is so bad that the, the overall staff numbers are not going up. So there's a, a huge issue over there as well. And again, that was partly caused because the uh, back 10 years ago, the government privatised the probation service. They realised that wasn't working and sort of brought it back into public management. But not in the same way that it was running before. So pre-privatisation, it was very much a local effort. There was this historic idea that probation would sit as part of the local community. Your probation officer would know you, but they'd also know your mum and where you went to school, and they'd know the other people you knew, and they'd probably, they would be embedded in that community. Now, that's, that was the, that's sort of the, the, idea, the ideal of how it worked. I think it was probably never that, that good, but also maybe that was an artefact of a, a less atomised society where communities were less mobile and everyone did know each other. But certainly now probation is much more centralised, so it, it's having other issues around that, and it's very sort of risk management focused. So there's, there's sort of policies and, and people are recalled on the basis of technical breaches of, of a licence rather than a meaningful increase in their risk or, or kind of new reoffending. So the probation service is struggling, already going through a period of transition, already got a staffing crisis, and now we're sort of shoving a load more people out of the prison system to be managed by probation, which I, I think I, I wrote about this a couple of months ago. I said, I think all the government is really doing here is pushing the problem down the line a bit. And, you know, I imagine the government hopes that the, the next disaster in probation or prisons will happen after the next general election when it will almost certainly be someone else's problem. Well, the thing I wanted to ask you about was this uh, IPP, which stands for Imprisonment for Public Protection Sentencing. It was described as the greatest single stain on our justice system. 
I think a lot of people have never really heard about it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard about it before I went to prison either. Uh, and actually, the first, the first other prisoner I met um, inside was an, on an IPP sentence. And he was also called David. Uh, so we were both standing in the, the holding pen at Wandsworth, which is this, I said, this sort of perspex cell. And he walked up to me and said, oh, you, are you, you're a fraud, right? And I was like, yes, how did you guess? And we, we sort of started chatting. And, and yeah, he was on an IPP sentence. So the IPP sentence was brought in by David Blunkett when he was uh, the minister in charge of it. So back in the mid-2000s. And he brought in this new sentence. The idea was that, that criminals who were a sort of a particular threat to the public would be given indeterminate sentences. And the, the, the idea was that you know, we, we give life sentences, indeterminate sentences to murderers and very kind of serious criminals. And this was, this was targeted at the sort of the next tier down, but maybe people who are prolific offenders. So if someone kept committing particular acts of violence or you know, just was a prolific offender of one kind or another, there would be issue with these sentences. And they would have an a initial tariff which said you will definitely be imprisoned for one year, three years, five years, and after that you'll have to be uh, approved for release by the parole board. Right. And these, these sentences were issued, I think, to far more people than the government at the time really expected. And I think were not necessarily that well understood by the, the people, the, the judges issuing them. Uh, because once an IPP prisoner has been released, uh, up until now they've been on either li released on licence for the rest of their life or for very long periods of time. And what that means is if that person does anything to annoy their probation officer, doesn't turn up for meetings, even 5, 10, 15 years after being released, they can be recalled to prison. Mm -hmm. So there's been a very, very high level of suicide amongst IPP prisoners. Um, and... Yesterday, the government announced actually they're going to make a change, which is if prisoners who were sentenced under IPP have been out for three years without reoffending, then their license will be terminated. So they will no longer be sort of, you know, constantly having to be at risk of being recalled. Um, I think it's a good step. It, it, it does leave the issue still of the IPP prisoners who are still inside. Uh, you know, in many cases, who the offence they were actually sentenced for would be something quite minor. Um, although, you know, they, they will often have had a, a track record of prolific offending. I think that, that is important to recognise. It's not, sometimes it's sort of headlined to say, oh, you know, they committed this relatively minor crime and they've been in prison for 15 years. That That, that is true, but the, the sentences were not given out for, typically, I think, for first offences. So the Government, I think, has sort of a political challenge here in that no one wants to release a load of people from prison who then go on and commit loads of crimes. But these these prisoners are held under this sentence, which was abolished about a decade ago, and are still, you know, kind of enduring this endless wait, no real sense of when they might be released from prison. And that, I think there is a, a general acceptance, not just sort of in people who campaign for reform, but around sort of politicians generally and, and wider society, that this is a, you know, a horrendous stain on our on our nation i think the the challenge is going to be finding a politician brave enough to say do you know what we have to do something about these men inside like we can't just leave them there and i think it's it's great alex chalk has been brave enough to do the right thing about those who've been released but there needs to now be action on the 
the, the, the IPV prisoners who are still, still in prison. I watched this um, program on Channel 4, and it had some celebrities who were put into a prison-like environment, and one of them was uh, journalist Peter Hitchens, and he's sharing a cell with a, a young guy who's had been put in prison for violent offences. It was quite emotional viewing to see them form this relationship and, and talking with one another. Um, and Peter Hitchens, I think he said that he, you know, he changed his love for his fellow man by going through that experience. And I wanted to ask you, you know, is this a kind of true-to-life thing when people are incarcerated together? Do these close relationships really form? Absolutely. So I, I think the, the programme you're talking about was banged up from yeah. Channel 4, and I, I read the Peter Hitchens article as well. I, I've talked a lot about how unpleasant prison is and how you're, you know, you're in this tiny cell the size of a, uh, a parking space that you, you know, where you, you have your toilet, you have a sink, you have a bunk bed and not much more room for anything else and you share that you know, with another man. And all of that's true, but I think also in a strange way, if you have a, a good cellmate and you get on with each other, that relationship can be more intimate than a marriage. Uh, you know, you, you you probably don't spend all day with your spouse in a space that small. Normally, you you know, you go off to work or go different places, or you know, you probably have a, a separate bathroom. You don't sleep and eat and, and go to live in the same place. And there there is an intimacy about it where, after a period of time, you come to talk about everything. You know, and you you will bear your soul in a way that you you don't with many people. And I think there's a I. There's a sort of, in that kind of adversity of being in prison and all being in this same horrible place, there is a bonds you. Uh, you know, and I think, often think I, I had a cellmate in Wandsworth for most of my time there. So from, from uh, late March uh, 2020 to December, I, I shared a cell with this one guy. You know, yeah, but, but you know, we, that was through uh, COVID. It's a guy called Arthur. Um, and we, we talked about everything. You know, like I, we, we told each other things we told almost no one, perhaps no one else in the world. And I think what I really came to realise in prison is, is that there are a lot of people in prison who've had really like horrible, brutal childhoods and terrible lives. And I, I, I felt a sort of profound sense of shame quite often. I think that actually I, I didn't have a a terrible, brutal childhood. I was very privileged. I had, you know, everything on a plate, really, and, I, and yet I still offended. And I think a lot of the men I met in prison had far more excuse for their offending than I did. Uh, and I, 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 I'm with Peter Hitchens on this. I, I, I came away from being imprisoned with, with, with sort of far more love for my fellow man. I think the some of the acts of, of profound kindness and love I saw in prison moved me to tears then and still do. I often think of uh, in Wandsworth on, on H Wing on the on the the ground floor. There were two two uh, prisoners. One was very old. Uh, we called him Pops. I think it's a Pops on every prison thing. This was our Pops, uh, and he was not very mobile. He was not very well, and his neighbour every day would help him to the shower and help him wash. No one told him he had to do that. No one made him do that. If he'd stopped doing it, nothing would have happened to him. He, he did that simply, you know, out of kindness and love. And I think anyone who's been to prison, or even people who've had family members in prison, will, 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 will talk of things like this. There were just these times when 
prisoners in, you know, in, a, in a terrible place, all in this, this awful condition of adversity, of course, as a result of our own, own crimes. But actually, when people who've, who've lost almost everything can turn to one another and care for one another and, and offer love and offer kindness and charity, I think that is, it's profoundly moving. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I, I think those are the, the bright, good things about prison, which I, I sort of cherish in my memory. The final thing I wanted to ask you about is just at the point of release, and you've been you know, locked up for this period of time, and then suddenly you have to make the switch from that to freedom again. I mean, is it difficult to readjust? Yeah, it's... So, so when I went to prison, I, I suppose I... I when I when I could bring myself to think about the day of my release because it felt so far away. When I thought about it, I, you know, I, I imagined something very filmic, you know, almost sort of like a American prison film, the great gate opening and you walk out, you know, into the future. Uh, and it's nothing like that, uh, particularly for me because I was released from an open prison. So one day they just said, oh, you know, got on the town and said, you know, Shipley, come on up. And I, I went up and said, oh, you, you need to go over to, the, to do your release paperwork. And I handed in my key and walked off with my, my bag over my shoulder. Now... And it couldn't have felt more anticlimactic than I signed some paperwork and got in a car, you know. And I think throughout our prison sentences, prisons, prisoners often believe we are going to have this great joyful moment of release. And actually, it's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and I speak to lots of, of men who I got to know in prison, and I talk to people on Twitter about this. And I think it's very common, this experience, that we've expected it to be this experience absolute joy you know I'm released it's over and actually it can be quite difficult uh, there can be a, a confusion lots of confusion lots of sadness lots of negative emotions I think s certainly while I was in prison I think I, I, I essentially just parked a lot of negative feelings and then after I got out I had to start processing them uh, and I think that's very common I think also you know the the world outside can feel quite chaotic. Just yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who has been released after about 15 years in prison and he was just saying like it's just keeping on top of everything you have to do is hard. You know because in prison a lot is done for you. There's, you know you don't have to worry about paying an electricity bill or the rent or doing your grocery shopping or you know all sorts of things that we just have to do in life. So, so when someone's beginning particularly for a longer sentence there I think there is a sort of it could be quite overwhelming to suddenly have to be responsible for all this extra stuff. And I think the sort of shadows of, of prison stay with you, they certainly stay with me. I, I often think about the, you know, the terrible things I saw, particularly in Wandsworth, the noise, the kind of the yelling and screaming at night. And it's the work of years, I think, to let that go, if you can ever let it go. I've, I've been out for nearly two and a half years and I, I'm still, haunted by that stuff and I think as with any really traumatic experience it can be like that I remember right at the end of my sentence I was walking around the the grounds at Halsey Bay with a, another prisoner who'd been a soldier for a long time we were both near the end of our sentences both close to being released and I said to him so what's it what's it been like you know what's, what's your sentence been like and he said it's he said it's a, it was a lot like a deployment or a war zone in that I feel like I've had this really strange, unique experience that no one can really understand unless they've been there. And 
a lot of it was very boring, some of it was terrifying, some of it was awful. But I don't really know how to process it because I don't really have anyone to talk to about it. And that stayed with me. I think I think prison is a very, very unique experience and one that's very, very hard to understand unless you have been there. So I think that's part of why I try to talk about it to help people understand. But I suspect also, you know, if I'm going to armchair psychologist myself, I suspect part of what I do is in writing about prison, talking about prison, going to inspect prisons, doing a PhD around imprisonment, I'm, I'm probably looking to make the object of my, my trauma and my fear feel safe because I'm engaging with it that I can control. Uh, that's, my, that's my way of going. But I think everyone who's been to prison has to find ways of, of resolving and, and healing from that. David Shipley, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you, Dave.